All right, so we're gonna try recording from the couch today, which also means with the cats present. They may be making a guest appearance. I can hear Leela's bell. Predicted this might happen. It'll be okay. It'll be adorable, but it'll be okay. I don't know why that's a but. <laughs> it's adorable and it will be okay. Hi, Boo-Boo. I can hear you purring on the mic. You know, I'm not gonna apologize for that. Cat cameos are to be seen as bonuses. Let's see if I can get you on mic. Are you just gonna make a guest appearance this whole time? You wanna be in Will's lap, don't you? Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 6, Quiz Show, where we will be looking at Chapters 9 and 10 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of ways and means. Alright, so to preface this, today is going to be an unusual episode. Yeah, my back is hurting a little bit, so we're not able to use our normal pod room, so we're recording in our living room with the cats present. So, as a reason for that, we usually record sitting on the floor of our guest room. Hopefully in the future, we will actually have a place with actual seating available. Cross your fingers, we can buy a house sometime this year. Secondly, if you hear a little rumble, that's probably Boo Boo. She is purring and sitting on Will's lap. And I don't know how well the microphone's going to pick her up, but it's kind of cute. If you hear thudding, that's probably Sokka, because I think he sees a bird outside. Or a squirrel. Or a kid. You never know with him. Second reason that this is going to be a little unusual. We read the material three or four weeks ago, and we did all of our prep three or two weeks ago. And... I kind of forgot what this whole chapter's about, so we're going to discover it together. Good thing you're doing the recap this week. I wrote it down already. Well, we can start with that. I also took notes, so. Well, before we get into it, also apologies if the sound is a little bit different. Little bit of disclaimers. I think you all understand what the format of the podcast is by now, and if you don't, it's in all the rest of them. So before we begin, let's get a few actual disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, all of our discussions will naturally assume at least a passing familiarity with the source texts, namely Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as the ancillary texts, Lightning Tree, and the Slow Regard of Silent Things. Needless to say, there's going to be spoilers ahead. Hope you're okay with that. If not, why are you here? Finally, a word to our community. Be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. 
With that, let's go ahead and dive in. As I mentioned earlier, you've got the recap this week. You got 45 seconds on the clock. You ready to go? Okay. I guess. All right. In three, two, one, go. Quill finally goes through admissions and winds up confused and upset because the masters didn't ask him any of the questions from any of the books that he risked expulsion for in order to read. Then he gets his tuition bill, which necessitates a visit to everyone's favorite Gaelic, Davy. But first, what trip to Emre would be complete without an attempt to find Denna? And hey, look, this time he's found her because she's told him exactly where to find her. Oh, and Davy offers to take Quoth to bed in exchange for the archives access. 32 seconds. You made it in with plenty of room to spare. Well... This is what happens when I read off of a cheat sheet that I made three weeks ago. If it works, it works. So we chose as our lens ways and means because this is really all about how both the university works and also how Kvothe works. We start out with sort of this crazy quiz show entrance exam, which I've touched on it before. This is kind of a dumb way to run a university. <laughs> yep, we are loudly agreeing that showing up and being tested by people who don't have a vested interest in whether or not you continue your education. <sighs> not only that, like, it perpetually amuses me that Quoth has the temerity to be upset that they didn't ask him about books that, as far as they knew, he had no access to. So why would they even ask him about it? That's just dumb. So anyway... Let's go through what each of the masters ask him about. Starting off with Arwil, who asks him about the medicinal properties of Mahenka. Okay, before we get into that, I have to bring up something. He just watched Elodin light fire to Hem's room. He took a shower and his hair is wet. He is not sneaky. My hair is super short now, and I take a shower and I towel it off and it's mostly dry, I get the impression that Quoth maybe hasn't had a haircut, but there's gotta be a way. He knows sympathy well enough where he should be able to, like, steam the water away or something, right? One would think. Not only that, though, it's not like he has that many clothes that he can change out of. True. And most of them are ripped to shreds because of his nighttime activity of crawling through a collapsed tunnel to get to the archives. I get he's making do with the best of what he's got, but let's not insult people's intelligence here. Anyway, so moving on, Arwolf asks for the medicinal properties of Mahenka and then lists some hypothetical symptoms to get Quoth to make a diagnosis. But in a way that Quoth reads as being a trick question, but I'm not sure Arwell meant to be. Yeah, the... I wouldn't make that diagnosis because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not authorized. I'd ask an alpha to do it. Granted, it's responsible of him to answer that way. And then he says, well, maybe it's smelter's flu. But that would never happen because all of our people here are really responsible in how they do things. Except I totally got it. <laughs> because he's the only desperate student and because he's the only person who would ever push his limits. Right. Then Brander comes in with a word problem that basically is just currency conversions. Kind of boring, but I mean, Brander is the mathematician, so kind of boring. 
I take mild offense at your characterizing maths as boring. Look, people who study math fall into one of two categories. They're either exceedingly boring or they're the most interesting people you've ever met. Brandur is not that latter category. <laughs> Fair enough. He then presents him with a trifoil compass word problem, which seems kind of pointless. Brandur is basically just a speed bump, in other words. He's there because he has to be? Pretty much. It's not like Quoth ever really interacts with him on a regular basis. But he also says, I was boggled by the question. Orienting by trifoil required detailed maps and painstaking triangulation. It was usually only practiced by sea captains and cartographers, and they used detailed charts to make their calculations. I'd only ever laid my eyes on a trifoil compass twice in my life. Either this was a question listed in one of the books Rander had set aside for study, or it was deliberately designed to spike my wheel. I don't think Brandor cares that much, and I think he would ask this of anyone. He probably just has a list of questions. It may also be one of those sort of dead reckoning questions that you oftentimes see in job interviews where they ask you, like, how many piano tuners are there in the city of Chicago? Or something like that, you know? Right, you're supposed to get in the ballpark. You're supposed to get an order of magnitude information, but not necessarily an actual answer. It matters more about how you'd go about getting an answer than the answer itself. Yeah, you just start with making a few assumptions and stating what those assumptions are. And then from there, extrapolating out what you can find. And then, yeah, it's all back and napkin stuff and nothing is really meant to be testing your ability to get the right answer, but rather your ability to think through a problem. It's like FizzBuzz. Yep. The one thing that struck me, though, in Kvothe's answer was that he says, honestly, I have no idea, which is like the first time that he's ever admitted that he is not smarter than everyone else in the room. You know, this is the beginning of wisdom for him. I wonder if the plumb bob is still a little bit effective because, for instance, if I were inebriated... I would be more likely to just speak whatever came into my head rather than try to obfuscate. There's a lot less bullshit here. Next, we come to Elodin, who essentially just offers a cheeky question about how to count cards in a game of spades. And then gets everyone else kind of annoyed at him. And he claps back on what? You want me to actually ask him something that only a namer would know? As in something we haven't taught him? Why would we do that? Yeah, it would be sort of like trying to play Eruption before someone would teach you how to play guitar at a beginner's level. Eruption? It's a legendary guitar solo that Eddie Van Halen used to play before he really got me. Okay. If you listen to it, it's pretty epic. Essentially what would happen is Eddie would take the stage and then while he'd just be going crazy on his guitar, David Lee Roth would be off sitting to the side having a beer smoking a cigarette, and just waiting for him to get done. <laughs> gotcha. So if you're saying, before I will teach you how to play a basic guitar song, you got to just do this master level thing. That's really dumb. <laughs> okay, I do have a real world example of this kind of thing happening. When I went to DigiPen, the game design department was new-ish. It was within the first four years of it being a thing. 
and their curriculum was being designed by game designers. I love all of them, but the curriculum was also being iterated upon while it was in existence. So there were a couple of instances where I was expected to use a tool before reaching the class level in which they taught the tool. And this is further proof that agile methodologies don't always apply to every single practice. Right. Like they were kind of adjusting the curriculum ahead and behind us while we were in the middle of it. And I don't know that that's necessarily stopped happening, but it was really frustrating to the first cohort, mildly frustrating to the second cohort. I think I was in the third or fourth cohort. And yeah, here's this complicated game design engine. We've taught you how to use Flash. We have not taught you how to write in Python. Please do it anyway. Yeah, Elodin at least seems to recognize the absurdity of making everyone prove to themselves that yes, you are a good Billy quiz boy. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's true. However, Elodin makes a show of caving, quote, caving. He's like, fine. And his eyes were dark and his voice had a strange resonance to it. Where does the moon go when it is no longer in our sky? I think that's going to be important here coming up. Do you mind if I have a quick sidebar while we talk a little bit of King Killer theory? Go for it. We'll find this question has a lot of importance later on when Kvothe has his visit with Thalurian in the Fey, where we find out that the moon actually goes into the Fey world during its off cycles. And that becomes a major point of contention in the Shaper War, and there's a war between the humans and the Fey early on in the dawn of prehistory that it rises out of all of this. So it's a deep question, which is also seemingly easily answered because it doesn't actually leave our sky. We just can't see it. So speaking of galaxy brain takes and King Killer theories, if you're not watching the Super Carlin Brothers right now, they're some of the people that have like really detailed and galaxy brain explanations of the Pixar theory, and they've ran with it. They're currently in the middle of a series of theory videos on Name of the Wednesday, which I wish that we had thought about that and we're actually releasing our podcast on Wednesdays, but we don't. Sigh. They are clever. Anyway, so far they've only gone over the theories that most Kingkiller fans that have delved into the subreddit already know. Things that we kind of take for granted are already established theories. You know, who is Master Ash? Is he Cinder? Probably. Is Quoth a Lackless? Probably. <laughs> is Malo and his aunt? Yes, probably. Things that are not terribly tough leap unless you're a newbie to the series which if you're listening to us you probably aren't but it's a lot of fun they are very exuberant and I always love seeing and hearing from new fans of the series 
Anyway, back to the book. Back to the quiz show. Next up, it's Elksadol, looking as ever like Jafar from Aladdin. I'm amused that such a lovely character is described in the way that kind of makes him seem like Mirror Universe Riker from Star Trek. He takes off his sideburns to reveal a goatee. <laughs> well, that one wasn't Mirror Universe. That was a transporter accident. But I'm a nerd, so let's go on. Elksa Dahl asks the following questions. The binding for linear galvanic attraction, the distance of insurmountable decay for iron, which Quoth has quibbles about, and then the heat required to burn away one ounce of water. I love that in this entire long story, Coat Quoth, adult Quoth, bothers to state that he had some quibbles about what the master described as insurmountable. But I digress. Go ahead. Mandrag, who just simply passes. Mandrag has been a non-presence. Except he should be a presence because Quoth was just doused with a plum bob and Sim has clearly stated that Mandrag knows what the hell this is. It makes me wonder if perhaps Mandrag was complicit in the plum bob's concoction. No, it was Davy. remember? She's actually the one that did it and he's probably the one that taught her, but not on purpose to do that. Moving on, we then have Lauren, who has a simple question. What are the rules of the archives? And this is seven words. <laughs> it is. And Kvothe, of course, gets annoyed because he prepared an answer based on the reading list, which, again, as far as Lauren is concerned, Kvothe should have no access to. Which is probably good that he couldn't answer the question about the trifoil compass. Lauren isn't an idiot. If he can perfectly answer questions from books that are only available in the archives and are not allowed to leave the archives, how much of an idiot is Quoth? Yup. So then Kilvin's turn comes up and Kilvin provides questions that he himself is trying to figure out and using Quoth as a sounding board. Let's see. Galvanic throughput of copper. That, I think, is actually something that He's giving a softball question. And then conductive coefficient of gallium. Once again, Quoth just used these, and Kilvin would know because Quoth had just made deck lamps. One of the things that I notice about Kilvin in general is he is one of the few masters who actually treats Quoth as an equal. And I think that's one of the reasons that Quoth really likes him so much. And it's one of the reasons I like Kilvin, frankly. He treats his students as capable people who are worthy of being treated as equals and he is happy to share his knowledge with them they're just people who haven't had a chance to learn the stuff he has yet so then we come to him and this quote sums quote up to a t i have a sharp loathing for rhetoric and pointless philosophy i'm not sure he'd like you i mean I've made my position on Quoth clear multiple times. I think he's oftentimes quick to dismiss things as pointless. Meanwhile, Hem dispenses with rhetoric and logic and simply asks, Did you set fire to my rooms, you racist slur? Yeah, about that. Hem's not a good person. Quoth is portraying him as not a good person with shorthand that says, 
neon sign, not a good person. And he kicked the dog. And he was a sexist asshole to all the women in his class. So then uh, Kvothe's response, of course, is, as one might imagine, not terribly politic. And also colored by the plumb bob. But I am also going to say this. If someone has been cruel or racist in the way that Hem is being portrayed here, I'm not going to hold a sharp-tongued response against the person who has been victimized by it. Right. While Quoth's answer is mean and rather rude, I don't think he owes Hem any courtesy at this point. I didn't set fire to your rooms, but I wish I had. And I wish that you'd been in there when it started, sleeping soundly. Maybe that's a little further than um, it should have gone. And maybe it undercuts Quoth's point and legitimacy for his clapback. But I'm not going to tone police him here. Fair enough. And then we come to the Chancellor, who is, as we're reminded, the Master Linguist, who essentially asks about the etymology of the slur. Which I think is a valid thing to understand. Words that we oftentimes take for granted as just being normal oftentimes have their roots in very harmful historical instances. You know, I remember words that I used growing up that I didn't think were wrong. Later, I came to understand that they were offensive, that they were harmful, and had their roots in ways that people dehumanized other human beings. So what strikes me is... There are a couple of ways that people react to being told, you know what, that is actually a racist or a classist or a homophobic or a sexist slur. One way is to get defensive. I didn't know, or it's not that bad because it's not something that hurts me, or I'm going to still keep using it even though I know this information now. And then there's the people that go, oh, oh no. No, I didn't know that. What? No. There is a design style that is actually rather offensive to Romani people that people use innocently to describe kind of an eclectic kind of, I don't know how to describe it without using the word and I don't want to use it. Yeah, it's usually meant to describe people who are artsy and coming from a diverse background, taking things from all over the world. The word seems innocent enough to describe hipsters. Yeah, but when you learn that it is actually a slur and it has its roots in what is essentially genocide. Yeah, we're just not going to use it. But then you go, oh, oh, well, I'm going to make an honest to goodness effort to never perpetuate this. I had a similar example happen at work. So I work for a company that has offices all over the world. So at one point we had one of my coworkers was working on a dashboard and it had an acronym associated with it. My coworker is from India and works in the Netherlands, just for cultural context here. The acronym though ended up spelling a slur for people of Japanese descent. He didn't realize this obviously, and once it was brought to his attention, he's like, oh, well, that's obviously something that we can't call this thing. Let's change the name of it 
and I'll work with the developers. We'll get it fixed on all of the alerting so that it doesn't show up in anything else because we didn't mean to cause offense and we don't want to cause offense. So let's not cause offense. And it's not about being politically correct. It's about giving a crap about people. And if your mistake is truly innocent, it's okay to own that it's innocent and work to do better. And despite the fact that it feels kind of demoralizing and like you're admitting weakness to take something like that back, other people seeing you do that will actually think that you are a kinder, stronger person, psychologically speaking, if you apologize for things without equivocating, without getting defensive, you will be viewed in a better light by those who are seeing you from the outside. If you want to prove that it was innocent, that's what an innocent person does. They admit the mistake and work to correct it. Now, moving on, Quoth does explain the etymology of what is a racist slur against his people. And I think that because he did that, the chancellor is more willing to give him grace in his response to Hem's question. And at this point, he also makes clear that Hem is skating on thin ice. And to be clear, if Hem had reason to believe that Quoth had burned his rooms, he'd have cause to be angry. That is perfectly fair. He would not have cause to racially abuse him, though. Or just abuse him. He could say, did you set fire to my rooms? That was a jerk thing to do. He would be well within his rights to say that. Because, let's be real, even though Hem is a jerk, burning his room is also a jerk move. Thanks, Elodin. Moving on, next chapter. So naturally, Quoth's tuition is on the high side. Nine talents, five jots. I really wish I understood what the conversion rate really was, because, like, if that's $90, eh, if that's $900, ugh. Yeah, trying to translate that into 2021 dollars is tricky. But it's a lot. Especially for someone who has a very hard time making money. I mean, Quoth has basically been running with a balance hovering around the three to four talents over the course of a given month. Mm, no, I highly doubt that. He hovers around zero if his constant talk about the ledger has anything to say about it. That's why he has to keep borrowing from Davy. True. But let me put it this way. For him, single-digit talents still represents a lot. And I wonder where the line of, well, that's really not that much, is. Because when I was insanely strapped, spending $11 on a little tin of tea was insane and stupid and not something I would do when there was a perfectly good $4 box of 18-count tea. But now I've gotten older, I've gotten more financially secure, the $11 tea still kind of expensive, but it's not unattainably so. And so I wonder where average society feels that pressure of like, this is really expensive versus this is an acceptable price. So I wonder what most people would look at that tuition as, if it would be a hardship or not. Anyway. So first stop for Quoth is to cash out at the fishery. 
And after everything is all said and done, he ends up getting two talents, three jots, and eight drabs. And I wonder if he's doing small jobs for small pay because he doesn't see a value in spending a long time doing one job for a lot of pay or for potentially no pay. I think he is looking in that sort of, where's the sure money? And I get it. I understand it. And recognizing risks is a tricky thing, especially when you come from a background like Quoth's where risk aversion is a real thing, where, you know, if there is something where there's a high amount of investment with a very real risk that you may take a full loss on it, you look for the thing that is going to be easy money, or at least as close to easy money as you can get. And I appreciate that. I just think that sometimes you'll get a higher return stepping out of your comfort zone. And that's something that Kilvin's going to talk to him about. But not in this chapter. What does happen in the fishery is Kfoth tries to pull one over on Jackson, who is the, what, giller of the fishery? Yeah, he's in charge of bookkeeping for the fishery right now. But that's a punishment for having not noticed the bone tar was going to explode the whole building. But it's an important job. And usually one for people who are not as important as Jackson. But Kvothe does try to pull one over on him. He asks for silver and gold wire, and these are expensive items. And Jackson's like, you know, you're not the first person to think that they could use the fishery to help out their tuition money. Please don't. We're smarter than that. Yeah. I wonder here if Quoth was planning to just sell the raw materials or if he was planning to actually forge silver talents. I don't think he was trying to forge silver talents. The charitable read is that maybe he was trying to get these more expensive things so that he could make more expensive items so that he could sell them. But it seems like there's probably not enough time for that whole process to work. So I think he was going to sell the raw materials. Here's a whole bunch of copper wire. <laughs> I mean, some people do do that. Yes. And it's not an insignificant amount of money. Not sustainable, but it's not an insignificant amount of money. So that means he's got only one choice left. Off to Emre to see Davy. But first. But first, no trip to Emre would be complete. Without a trip to see Denna. Or to find her, because... More accurately, she's not always there. She doesn't live there. She doesn't really live anywhere. She's kind of nomadic. And even before then, he has to have a quick stopover at an apothecary. We'll get to why. Okay, so this time around, she has rooms at the Gray Man, which Kvothe assumes is an inn, but seems more like a boarding house. Kind of sketch to me, but it seems like an upscale place because... There is a porter at the door that can bar his entry and also has to go and make sure that the young lady is available for Kvothe. He knows that she's there, but he is not going to let someone that looks like they haven't had a bath in a week just waltz in. There is definitely some classic gatekeeping going on here. In the literal sense. And it also speaks to the way that institutions oftentimes have discrimination built into them where just getting into the door to speak to someone requires basically a 
preliminary class examination. Quoth says, I was more amused than offended, which I've been in those situations where I'm like, I do not look like I belong here, but you're not going to be so rude that you're going to point out that I do not belong here. So I'm going to sit here and be cheeky, letting you stare at my purple hair and question my credentials for standing in your presence and asking for what I want. And there's nothing that you're going to do about it. So the gatekeeper finally agrees to let Quoth see Denna after he rings up to her to let her know who her caller is. And Quoth meets Geoffrey, the poet. Quoth does not like poetry. He has disdain for poets. Much like philosophers. He's got to hate me. Yep. He's got me coming and going. That sounds wrong. Anyway. And Geoffrey seems like a generally good sort. If a little dumb. He seems like the sort of person who maybe has talents outside of social skills. Okay. So then uh, after Jeffrey leaves, Quoth presents the present that he picked up for Denna, which is asthma medication. I mean, it's thoughtful and it's actually really sweet. But this is a woman who is used to being given emeralds and fancy clothes and harps and lyres. I brought you asthma medication. This is how you work it. Yeah, it's useful. It's thoughtful. And it's probably something she needs more than the other things. But it's not exactly what you call romantic. And maybe it's not meant to be. This is true. Then Denna gives a brief demonstration of her skills on the harp. Turns out she's actually pretty good at it. One of the things that I picked up here is Quoth talks about how being good at music is not necessarily about the speed with which you can jam notes down the fretboard. It's about making sure that you're able to play things at an even tempo or at a tempo that actually makes sense. It seems that Denna actually has a bit of a knack for music probably equal to Quoth's own. There's a line in this that I really enjoy. I have a particular fondness for women with music running through them. This is why Pat's writing is so unique. Quoth has a disdain for poetry, and yet he speaks in very poetic prose. I kind of get the sense that he feels like poets are oftentimes gilding the lily, as it were, thinking a little too hard about things that really should just be intuitive, as if that isn't something that happens with music and songwriting. To continue on with the story, we learn that the other side of society that Quoth is never privy to, because he does not come from money, has interesting uses for the skills that he has been so desperately trying to attain. In particular, sigildry and the frivolous use thereof. Denna has a bell that can make a bell downstairs ring and get the attention of the porter, aka the gatekeeper. And she finds it amusing to use this for the just most useless requests the most frivolous request she can think of. And in this case, she's going to get a small luxury item for Quoth, 
who has no money and has not had hot chocolate since he was a child. And again, with that whole analogy of the tea thing, when you have no money, luxuries are a hardship on you, even as they are a luxury item. When you do have money, a luxury item loses its luster. He's talking about this as a frivolous use of sigildry, but it seems no more ridiculous than saying a food delivery app is a ridiculous use of coding because it's essentially doing the same thing. You're using technology to ask someone to do something that you won't do for yourself. I would have said a frivolous use of your phone rather than of coding. But someone spent the time to actually program this app to ask someone to do the thing for you. Right. And I think that it's actually a really good use of it if the companies in charge of said apps were ethical and treated their employees well, which historically they don't. And they don't even treat them as employees. But we digress. The option to do something to ease the living standards, I guess, or to enhance the living standards, I don't know, to make those little rough edges of life sanded down. I don't think it's frivolous. I think that society has made it seem so to those that cannot afford to do so. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I don't think that this use to make a bell that makes another bell ring is inherently frivolous in and of itself. It has a utility. It has a way to send signals over distance, which in this case, it's being used for simple luxuries, certainly. And one might say that's frivolous, but it also could have some real utility. So for instance, if you had an operation where you needed to signal someone who was out of earshot, to perform a task as part of it, that could be extremely useful. For instance, even within the fishery, I can imagine a scenario, if you have a timing-based operation where you have Kilvin on one side of the fishery operating one mechanism, and he needs someone to turn on a bellows on the other side, having something that he could use to send a quick signal would save a lot of time and effort for everyone involved. Another thing would be if you had a button or a thing that you could move to set an alarm if you did something stupid. Exactly. I can see how these are useful, and I actually think that Kvothe does use something similar as like a signaling device later on. But one thing I would like to talk about is how Denna fits in this. She's kind of a bridge between the people that we think that she's really a part of, which is like Foth's societal rung and the people that she is pretending to belong with. And she sees the novelty in all of the trappings that this Modegan prince is trying to give her. He seems to think that she expects and is worthy of and or is required to be treated with all of these same things that he is accustomed to. And it might just be because he doesn't even contemplate that there is a different way of being. He wouldn't have any concept of how Kvothe lives day to day. But she is not of that world, not of that societal rung. And so she can see all of this around her. And it's almost like she is a triangle in the midst of a bunch of circles. 
it kind of feels like she's being kept in a gilded cage and it doesn't matter how comfortable that cage is, how clean it is, how nice everything is in it, she still doesn't have the agency within it to leave as she pleases, to do as she wants. I think it's quite common where we see gilded cages throughout our economy. So for instance, every time you see some elaborate tech startup or big company that touts their on-site chef and all the fun amenities in the office and things like that, all of that is really designed to keep the workers in the office as long as possible, to get as much productivity out of them. Which isn't necessarily the same thing, but I digress, go ahead. The point is that it's built out of this desire to keep all of your people within that world and thinking through that lens. Quoth even says, so it's not to your liking? She responds, I like the chocolate and the harp, but I could do without the bell and the whole room just for sitting. And I hate knowing that someone is set to guard me, like I'm a treasure someone might try to steal. And I think Quoth gets the wrong impression and he doesn't actually understand why she would not be happy in this why she wouldn't want to be the little bird in the cage that is pretty to look at, but has no real function in the world. At this point, Dana recognizes that she is being viewed as an asset, not as a person. And that while all of these nice little luxuries and considerations are on their face perfectly pleasant and good, they are not giving those to her because they value her as a person. They're giving them to her as essentially a means to keep her there. She even says, I suppose this seems terribly ungrateful, doesn't it? She's worried about seeming ungrateful for having complaints about her life because she is aware that it could be so much worse, but she's still uncomfortable. And here I think her problem isn't so much with the on-site chef and the ping pong table and, you know, the jam room, all of the cool, fun things. It's more about the expectations that come along with those, that by accepting these gifts, you have incurred an obligation. The end of this little section sees Kvothe equating Denna's experience with how his father didn't enjoy the trappings of society and would rather have the freedom to do as he wished. And Denna opening up a little bit and feeling like she can trust Kvothe and getting exuberant about, yeah, exactly, that's what I mean. And Kvothe kind of missing the point a little bit. Still, I said, looking around, they are nice rooms. And Denna says, they're nice when you're here. Aww. It's really sweet. And Kvothe with his risk aversion, is never going to leave his comfort zone and try to pursue this any further. Because he has that, but she probably hates me instinct, which is so sad. Yeah, that's, I think, the most tragic thing about Quoth's relationship with Denna is he does not realize just how much he means to her, even as she is sending all of these signals that he is important to her. I think this also speaks to how anxiety and depression can lie to you about your own self-worth. 
about how other people view you. I know I struggle with that sort of thing. I struggle with that sort of thing. It's really interesting when we each start thinking that the other person is angry with us or thinks poorly of us, when that couldn't be further from the truth. And then we have to remind ourselves to be kinder to ourselves and to treat ourselves with the grace that the other person actually treats us with and the kindness. It's also hard sometimes when another person is sitting there telling you how valuable you are, not just to them, but to a whole host of people, especially when you have internalized that you are not that. It's hard to listen to all the outside voices when your inside voice is telling you lies. Again, in this case, as much as Quoth's inside voice is wrong, we have to be graceful to Quoth and empathetic to him. Hard left turn. Quoth is on his way to go see Davy. <laughs> Naturally, Davy is happy with this turn of events. I think Davy likes him a lot. On multiple levels. I think she likes him as a customer and also as someone who is fun and challenging and presents an interesting problem for her. She likes to share books with him. And I think that that's one of the most endearing things about her. She expresses her like for other people with her trust of sharing her physical objects, mostly books. And books are her most treasured things, as we come to learn. She treasures them as these fonts of knowledge and as these places of escape. These are things that she takes genuine pleasure in. And so when she loans a book to someone, it is a mark of trust greater than any business transaction that she could give. When you've finished, come back and we'll discuss it. This book is worth more than you are. <laughs> you know, I get it. Like, I think of my friends in high school. We used to loan one another books all the time, and it was this mark of trust and friendship amongst us that we had. There was a circle of us that all lent one another Terry Pratchett books as we got them. That's how we all read Discworld books. One of us would get a copy of one of the many of them available. Terry Pratchett was a prolific author, and there were constant numbers of them. So it was me and several others, we would each get a book and then pass it around the circle. And then we'd have that shared cultural set of jokes and language and references. It became something that we built our friend culture around. So there was a time in high school where a friend of mine lent me a book and I don't know how I lost it, but I lost it. And I was mortified and the very next day after I lost it and admitted to him that I'd lost it, I found it at a used bookstore and I bought it and I made sure to give him that copy. I've also tracked down people's books that had been lent to other people, specifically a guy that I was really good friends with about 10 years ago had lent, I think, one of his favorite series to a girl that had been dating a buddy of his. And when that relationship went south, it went south, like scorched earth south. I didn't know this girl. I tracked her down, found out her name, found her author website, because she was a writer, that had her contact info. And I messaged her and I said, so by chance, do you still have these books? And she said, you know what? 
I do. And I'm like, can I pay to have them sent back to me? And then I gave them to my friend for Christmas. <laughs> As he said, I gave him his own shirt back for Christmas. <laughs> but he was grateful. That took some doing. And in this case, Davy Lynn's quote, vision and revision, which honestly, that should have been a title for a WandaVision theory video. It probably was. Now, I think Davy also has a lot of fun just tweaking Quoth a little bit. I think she actually enjoys the back and forth negotiations. And I think she also enjoys being able to say no, which honestly is something I get, especially given where her rung in society is, where people expect women especially to say yes to any proposition. Being able to say no, to have that empowerment to say, no, that proposition is not worth my time. Being able to set your own boundaries and guidelines and rules, especially coming after time in the university where everything's pretty regimented, that has to feel really empowering for Davy. So I can see why she does it. Now, in this particular instance, she hardlines no, I am not going to give you a small loan any longer. I am only extending loans of six talents or more. And Quoth's like, but I don't need that much. You're just trying to extort me. And she's like, yeah, that's what I do. That's how I live. You understand this now. Good boy. This kind of reminds me of every time someone looks at a game project or something and complains, the developers are just doing this to make money. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Because good feels don't pay the bills. Right. It doesn't pay employees. Game developers gotta eat. But that's what the in-house chef is for. <laughs> <laughs> or the food delivery service. Fair play, I did get lunch catered quite often. Hey, I took advantage of it every time I could. Yep. Anyway... Meanwhile, through all of this, Davy is angling for something of her own that goes beyond just a normal business relationship with Kvothe. All of this is really motivated by the fact that Davy desperately wants access to the archives. And she has correctly surmised that Kvothe has access. And it is a testament to how much Kvothe loves and respects Ari that he will not give Davy access. This is an example of Quoth really taking care of a friend and treating them the way he would like to be treated and respecting Ari's agency. Ari showed Quoth the secret way because she trusts Quoth. And if this way is to be shared with anyone else, it has to be Ari's decision. And Quoth has to respect that. I do wonder if Davy knows Ari. I wonder if they're of an age. I wonder if Ari is someone that went to school with Davy because both of them are from a previous cohort. And if Kvothe is protecting Ari from something that Ari doesn't need protection from. That said, even if Ari and Davy are just fine, it's not for Kvothe to make the decision to give this information out. That is true. Now, we have both recently been subject to other people trying to protect us from things that 
maybe we don't view ourselves as needing protection from. In our quest for a new house, we have discussed whether or not we would be willing to do new construction. And the thing about me is that I have misophonia and sensory processing issues and random noise, especially droning noises and high-pitched noises and machine noises are so detrimental to my mental health because I cannot shut them out. You can suggest that I have noise-canceling headphones, which I currently have on my head right now, and they don't 100% help because I can always feel them. I just want to live in a quiet neighborhood with windows that are of a quality that can keep most noises out. That's all I really want. And the discussion of whether or not to live in a new construction building while other buildings are being created around us really comes down to how long would that be going on on whether or not I could actually enjoy myself living in a place like that. But it's my choice and it shouldn't be something that somebody else is trying to protect me from. In case you're trying to read between the lines here, let's just make the text text. That someone is me. <laughs> <laughs> now, that being said, is that my top choice? No, but it shouldn't be discounted out of hand. Davy, though, is willing to offer almost anything for this. She starts off with, I'll give you 10 talents right now. Not alone. I'll just buy it from you. And... Quoth goes through the list of all the things that he wants that that Ten Talents could pay for. And then he remembers that he is not a terrible friend. Says no. 20 Talents, says Davy. And guild rates on any loans in the future. So it would save him a boatload of money into the future. 40 Talents. Guild rates and I will take you to bed. Uh, the kid's 16. That's ooky. But man... Davy just really wants to read. And again, I really appreciate Quoth standing by his principles here and standing by his friend's agency. Davy only gives up because she realizes that Quoth is deadly serious. And it kind of breaks her heart a little bit. I don't think that she really wanted to take him to bed, at least probably not. But I think that she was offering anything that she thought she could give. You know, she might very well be either asexual or aromantic or, or whatever, and it doesn't really matter to her. Sex could just be a thing that she does maybe for fun, maybe as a transaction. There is no shame in that. People sell their manual labor skills in other ways, like offering to help build a house or put in new floors or lift heavy objects and go back and forth and like carry stones or sacks of compost or whatever it's just another way to use your body but it could be that she never had any intention whatsoever of doing that with both but she was just desperate you know i also think that on some level she appreciates the fact that Quoth says no i think also she probably knows that Quoth would never take advantage of that particular offer i think knowing that Quoth has lines he won't cross that Quoth has trusts that he won't betray that means that she can also trust him and in her line of work trust is hard to come by which makes it all the sadder that we know that she had something to do with the plumb bob we'll get to that we will however 
she does ask that Kvothe talk to his friend and see if there's anything that he can do to convince his friend, Ari, to let Davy into the archives. To my knowledge, he never really does that. Yeah, I don't recall any instance of that. If we're wrong, please let us know, dear audience. Thanks. Well, that's the end of that particular section of the book. Thanks for helping me remember what I read a couple weeks ago. You're welcome. I think it's time for us to talk about our Phrenemos of the Week. So this is our Aristotelian model of practical wisdom. And this week, I've turned to the most impractical of practical wise guys, which is to say, Elodin. Oh, God. <laughs> so on his face, Elodin is kind of a fool. He oftentimes plays the fool, but he is the sort of person who can speak wisdom in the way that everyone else would just ignore. So when he asks Quoth his entrance exam question, he knows, one, I haven't taught this kid anything, so why should I expect him to know answers to my questions? And two, if he can answer my questions, why does he need me? If you can do everything that the school teaches without them teaching you, why do you need them? So he asks kind of a silly question. And, you know, when he asks, where does the moon go when it's not in our sky? And Quoth responds with an honest, I don't know. That's exactly what he's looking for. He's looking for someone who admits that they need a teacher. But someone who can admit honest ignorance that's the first step to becoming a namer. Naming comes out of recognizing your own lack of knowledge and being curious about the world around you and not having the answers and being willing to just look at things without preconceptions. That's the key that Kvothe is so often missing with his need to know everything, with his need to feel like he has an answer for any question someone might say. That's the hardest thing for him. And for here, where Quoth answers, I don't know, that's the key. That's the start. That's what means that Quoth has what it takes to actually take this journey, even if he doesn't always demonstrate this. So speaking of Elodin, let's talk about interesting facts of the week. I believe it's your turn. It is. Today, I am going to bring you an interesting fact about linguistics. Specifically, we're going to talk about a part of speech that your English teachers probably never talked about. Though, I say probably in your case because you went to a very tiny private high school with teachers that were able to go into more depth on interesting and esoteric subjects than most public school teachers can. So the part of speech we will be talking about today are affixes. As a refresher, prefixes are bits of speech known as morphemes that fit at the start of words, like pre, anti, hyper, mono, etc. And suffixes, which fit on the end of words, a bull, ness, ology, and so on. But there is a third type of affix, an infix. Infixes, by contrast, insert themselves into the middle of words. In some language, not English, Infixes are common and can change the meaning or context of words. For example, in the language Khmer, the word slap means to die. But the infix am, making the word samlap, means to cause to die or to kill. Modern English, however, doesn't really have infixes. 
except for one specific instance, swearing, or more precisely, sticking an expletive in the middle of a word. For example, absolutely, or incredible. This is called expletive infixation. The thing is, much like there are rules for the order of adjectives in English, there are also rules about where you can stick a bloody swear word into another word. And in both of these cases, we tend to pick up on these rules without explicitly being told what they are. Rule number one, not every word or even every curse word will work as an infix. We don't say absolutely or in ashing possible. They sound weird to our ears in a way that words like bloody forking or gosh darned do not. And that's because the curse words that work best are ones that are categorized as fornicatives and theoimprecatives, which coincidentally can also be used at nearly any point in a sentence and still make sense, a.k.a. Fork the forking forkers. If anyone remembers the lovely audio file where a nice older gentleman broke down all of the grammatical categories of speech that fork can be used in. Words derived from these curse words can also be used, such as flipping, fricking, gosh darn, etc. Rule number two. You can't just stick an expletive anywhere in a word. They've got to go before a stressed syllable and not break a morpheme in two. So, in forking possible, works, and impossible forkingable, sounds bloody awful. The fact that almost all of us know how to use expletive infixation without having been formally taught how, and likely not knowing the name for it, is just fan-forking-tastic, wouldn't you say? I like it. Thank you very much for helping me make sure that I don't have to click the explicit box on this particular podcast episode. Happy to help you keep things PG. Thank you. So, what'd you think? I like it. I am always fascinated by how language evolves and the ways that people invent to use it. As much as you work to create rules for it, it evolves separate from the rules. But somehow makes its own rules. I don't think anyone sat down and said, okay, this is how you insert a swear word into the middle of an English word. I think what happened is someone just did it because it sounded good. Other people took it and then they ran with it. And then where it sounded right, they just kind of kept going with it in that direction. And when someone said the thing like "imporking fossible or... <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in. When people did it in the way that it's, quote, wrong, it just never took off. People just said, eh, that doesn't sound right. And so it just kind of fell by the wayside as sort of just an evolutionary dead end. Now, I wonder if people naturally did that ever. Because if you think about how, like, for reference, I got this information from a Tom Scott video on YouTube. And there are places where you can use the word forking that sound right within the sentence, but also map similarly to the middle of a word rather than in the middle of a sentence. So he talked about how there are places that you can stick a swear word in the middle of a group of words like Mount St. Helens. You can say Mount St. Forking Helens. And it still sounds right, but it also sounds very similar to absolutely. Yeah, and... I don't think this was something that someone said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. I think people found the way that sounded good and that ends up getting repeated as a sort of meme almost. 
Sort of like how you look at Cockney rhyme slang, it passed orally. People started using it and it was fun. People used it and passed it on and it became its own sort of subculture. And then it's only after the fact that linguists actually sit down and examine it and study it that they're able to find these patterns that emerge most of the time. Because the thing with English is there's always exceptions to those rules. I can't think of what those exceptions might be, but those exist. So I think oftentimes languages evolve before linguists have truly caught up to them. Witness how every time the Oxford English Dictionary issues an update, it's because language has evolved before linguists have been able to make a ruling. Consider the case of literal. It's at the point now where literally is also something that means figuratively. It's an actual formal definition in the OED because people don't use language as it's prescribed in rule books. People use language as it makes sense to them. And at the end of the day, the rule books are always playing catch up to how people actually build language up as it goes. That's why we add words. However, it does not happen in French. Right. French is interesting because they actually have a governmental body on how you can and cannot use a word in French. They have a vice grip on that stuff. Yeah, it's a cultural value on their part where they do not lightly import words from other cultures, for instance, and other languages. You compare English or Japanese, for instance, where we import languages from other cultures and languages all the time. In French, you have to invent a brand new... French word. Exactly. And it also applies to not just France, but also other French-speaking countries and provinces. Like, this is why in Quebec, Quebec is the reason why Tim Horton's Donuts does not have an apostrophe. Normally, we think of it as these are the donuts that Tim Horton makes. The reason it, they didn't do that, though, is that because Quebec has rules where if you have something that follows parts of speech, you have to translate it into French everywhere in Canada. So when Tim Horton started his donut franchise and started making it a thing across all of Canada, they had to make a decision to nix the apostrophe. If they'd kept the apostrophe in, they would have had to add a separate word mark in French, which would have been Les Donuts de Tim Horton. And that just didn't make sense. But if they just kept the apostrophe out, it effectively just became a collection of words, Tim Horton's Donuts. Okay. I just had to verify myself that there is no apostrophe. And if anyone who is listening would like to dispute Will's explanation of this, feel free, but this is hilarious to me. <laughs> this is, man, the tyranny of the vice grip on that language. It's kind of absurd, and it flies in the face of how language gets used. But this actually goes back to the French Revolution, when the revolutionary government decided that it had the ability to control every aspect of French society, and it would be society for French people and not for the elites. This is why they invented the metric system. Prior to that, it had been sort of this hodgepodge of things that, you know, you had the English system, you had the imperial system, 
you had all sorts of folk reckonings and things like that, they decided they would do everything scientifically, and so that's why they invented metric. And it was not out of some sense that they were gonna make something that made sense, but it's because it was a way to exert control over the French populace. And the language restrictions are the same way. It is a way to serve as a social control over the people of France. And you can debate whether that's good or bad on your own. I'm not gonna make a judgment here for you, but that's where it's from. But wow, we went off on a tangent there. A little bit. So with that, it's time for us to talk about our recommended thing of the week. So for me, this is something that's less an individual thing than a practice, and that is afternoon guitar constitutionals. So working from home here for the past year plus, it's been tricky sometimes for me to make the transition between work and home. And it's not like I have a commute to separate those two or a change of actual space. Like you don't have a way to have a memory dump. Yeah, I don't have a time to just sit and contemplate and get it all out. My commute right now, such as it exists, constitutes going up and down some stairs. And it can make it harder for me to just unwind. So lately, I have taken to spending anywhere from 15 minutes to a half hour, as soon as I get done with work, just playing guitar. You know, playing a few songs, riffing, doing exercises, just experimenting and having fun on it. Because it uses a completely different part of my brain than anything else that I do at work. It gives me a chance to create some space between my work and my home. And it's been really beneficial for me as sort of a meditative practice. I find that I'm a better partner after I do this. Would you agree? I think that you are more relaxed and able to process what happened during your day. I wouldn't necessarily say it makes you a better person, but it makes you a happier person. I think it makes it so that it's easier for me to be the kind of person I need to be as your partner. Since I'm not sitting here thinking just about work, I've got the ability to just think about life. And it's been really helpful. It also helps that I love my guitar and my guitar setup. So that's also something that I can just take pure pleasure in. If you're curious what I use, because I do enjoy my gear. So I play currently on a Schecter CR6 in Aquaburst, which is this really cool green and blue burst over a uh, poplar burl veneer. I love the way the neck feels in my hand. Interestingly, I play right-handed even though I am a left-handed person because it is easier for me to use my left hand on the fretboard than it is on the strumming. That's just a fun little trivia bit. And it's a lot of fun. For my amp, I use an Orange Crush 20, which is a little digital practice amp that makes me sound like I'm in Mastodon, which I am always happy about. So there's all kinds of fun to be had with that. So... I think that the best way to attribute this to other people who maybe don't have guitars or maybe don't have an interest in playing music is that maybe the best thing to say is that you have a meditative period between work time and home time. Yeah, 
for other people that could be going for a run or working out or something like that. For some people, it's reading a book. For some people, it's doing yard work. I don't understand those people, but that's what it is for some. I think that I will find some joy in gardening once I have a garden of my own. So I understand those people. Good. Good. But it's having that extra layer of activity that is done for its own sake, that is done intentionally, without any further higher purpose to it. And I think that's important. It's what helps you clear your head. It's really what gives you those little bits of joy. So I encourage you to find something like that to help you get through time and to make your life a little bit better. And it doesn't really matter what that is. Feel free to share it with us on Twitter. We'd like to hear about it. Absolutely. I would love to hear what everyone else does as that mind-clearing focus exercise or what you think that you'd like to. And what I'll also say is this doesn't have to be something that you're good at. Neither of us are good at the instruments that we have and or play. My current go-to is piano and I cannot play without a tool which is currently watching flow key videos on YouTube. I can't remember the things that I play, but if I'm watching the flow key, little bars of this is where you're supposed to hit the key right now, I can zone out a little bit. So for me, guitar was something that up until a few years ago, I didn't think was ever really going to be a part of my life. For the vast majority of my life, I've told myself that I'm not really a musical person, that I'm not coordinated, that I'm not good enough to do these things. It wasn't until 2019 that I actually started trying and figuring that I might as well give it a shot. And you were 37? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't until I was 37 that I started doing that. Like, this is something that is relatively new in my life. But I do it because it's fun, because it brings me peace, and I find joy in this. You're never too old to learn any of this. I'm not saying that you're going to become a professional musician or anything like that, though you might. You might discover something that is a true hidden gift. Who knows? But if all you discover is something that is fun for you, that brings you joy, why not? I'd say don't let your age or your ideas about how good you are stop you from trying any of this. I think it's important. And as Jake the dog says from Adventure Time, sucking at something is the first step to being kind of good at something. <laughs> well, I think that that's a good time for us to pause and think about our seven words from the book this week. I got a lot. Uh-huh. It was a dinner chapter. Not all of these are with Denna, actually. Right. No, but it was a dinner chapter. Yes. So that also goosed it. Yeah, that is true. But yeah, here's what I've got. I'm going to run down it. First, we have, what are the medicinal properties of Mahenka? We've also got, what are the rules of the archives? Which I really like that one. We've got, I merely stand in his reflected light. I thought perhaps you'd found yourself a patron. Kellen and I are walking around together. We've got, care to show me what you've learned? How long have you been at it? 
Other musicians will hate you for it. I've got my fingers aren't used to it yet. Would you care for something to drink? That would be very kind of you. Making something like that is called artificing. I've got, it's been years since I had chocolate. I like the chocolate and the harp. My stomach felt suddenly strange and weak. My mind went blank as fresh paper. Then we have, plus I am cute as a button. I love Davy. We've got, you are shiny as a new penny. Uh-huh. Then run bank and collect the tax. Then we fiery types should really stick together. I really like that one too. And the one that I actually chose was, I live a dangerous and exciting life. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was wondering because, like, I recognize that one too. So that one was one that was just the most fun for me. So what did you pick for your seven words from life? Something that applies to both the book and how I was feeling at the time that I chose them. So I have, I don't know, is better than lying. So the reason that I chose this was not only because twice for two different masters, Foth actually says, I don't know, or I haven't the slightest, or admits that the answer is not something that he can come up with. But also because in real life, I hate when people try to sound smarter than they are by coming up with an answer to a question that they don't know the answer to. I don't like when people try to give you promises that they cannot keep simply because they think that you want to hear an answer. It's a lie at that point. It is an assurance and it is a lie. It is meant to placate you. It is a lie and I hate it. I would rather someone say, you know what? I just don't know the answer. I don't have an answer. I've asked a question to people higher up and I have not gotten an answer back. The answer is I don't know and I am not going to assume the motives of another person. Or if I go and say, if I have 10 barrels of squash and 13 barrels of zucchini, how do I make chili out of them? And someone goes, I don't know. That's fine. Don't try to make things with those two ingredients that those two ingredients do not make. Fun fact, I put both of those ingredients into my chili. But there's other stuff. Lots of other stuff. Anyway, I'm just saying I appreciate an honest answer of I don't know much more than... Bullshirting. Makes sense. I think a lot of people are like that. But a lot of people on the other end of that feel like they're going to get in trouble, be yelled at, cause annoyance, something, cause offense, if they say I don't know. I don't think that most rational people would get mad at being told I don't know, especially if we made that a culturally acceptable answer. Soapbox done. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 11 and 12 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of proving one's worth. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing courtesy of me, Will McCullough. 
If you would like to help support us on this and other creative endeavors, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find early access to our show, as well as show notes and bonus pods and access to make me do more art specifically for you guys. But also in the future, we might be expanding our kind of creative endeavors beyond just the podcast. Right now, there is kind of a impetus on our part to rope you guys all in and maybe grow our audience through videos on YouTube when we do wind up getting the house that we are hoping eventually down the line we are able to purchase. We're thinking of personalizing the interior with geeky renovations, painting, whatnot. And we would wonder if anyone would like to watch us as we document our journey through new home ownership and through making all of these new and fun and interesting design choices within our new house. Will has dreams of a home office that feels more like a space he'd like to be in than our room full of boxes from when we moved last time that we haven't unpacked from two years ago. And I would like to make myself an office and creative space that is specifically designed so that the cats are not constantly disturbing me as much as I love the two little tykes. And I have found that I like watching other people be creative. And I was wondering if anyone wants to give us feedback on this, if you would also enjoy watching us paint bioluminescent murals on the wall or redo the flooring in our living room if it has carpet when we move in. We don't know because we don't actually know what house we're going to get because we are still in the early stages of this. But I'd really like to hear if any of you would enjoy this as an endeavor from us. You can go to our Patreon page and just write us a comment on any of our posts or you can visit us on Twitter at WaystonePod or message us on Instagram at WaystonePod, though Instagram has a hard time actually telling me when people message me, so it might be months before I see your message, which, argh. Suffice it to say, long outro is long, but we have lots of ways for you to contact us, and we would love, 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 love to hear your opinions, thoughts, theories, suggestions, whatnot. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. You have perturbed the cat. I have perturbed the cat. This is wrong. Do not let her just sit there licking. It sounds gross. I'll do what I can. Why are you licking my finger? <laughs> Boo boo. That sounded worse on the audio. <laughs> what the hell? You've woken the cat. This isn't going to work. Hi.
you do not get to make slurpy noises on the podcast. Sorry, little bug. <laughs>